So be not dismayed, do not be afraid, for I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Right. I will not leave you in Jesus' name. That's another scripture found in Isaiah 41.10. Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing here in Bristol Hope. Your wonderful presence is so life-giving to each and every one of us, and we are so blessed to be here and to hear your word go forth. And Father, we thank you for what you're about to do. And Lord, if, uh, we, we will have the, uh, the buckets in the back for you, the pails, so you can contribute to the growth of the church, which is definitely growing. And we give you all the praise and glory. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Good morning, good morning. Excited to be sharing this morning. Um, again, I've said it three times, but just in case, because I feel like I have to say I'm Zeke. Um, be filling in for Pastor Dave, and I forgot to welcome the people watching at home online. So welcome to Bristol Hope. Um, excited you guys are here. Um, you can turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. I'm just going to jump straight in. Revelation chapter 1. Um, this, this week, we, my wife and I, Elizabeth, celebrated uh, one year of living in Pennsylvania. So, I will, I will admit, it takes more than a year to wear off the Texas. There's still a little bit of Texas, so I don't know how long it takes for that to wear off, but uh, right, Brandon? Never. Never? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So, so we have one year down, I'll let you know, you know, in two, how much of the Texas has worn off. But I... I will say I, I do love Pennsylvania. It's a really special state. Um, I am from, so Texas is pretty big. Here I go, Texas guy talking about Texas. But Texas is pretty big. So it's, it's got a, a different landscapes, but where I'm from is West Texas. So it's pretty much like on the border of New Mexico. So where I'm from, we just have like flat mesquite trees and like flat red dirt and like the oil pipe jacks. So when I came here and there's like every 10 minutes I can go to a creek and like fish, or I can go to a lake, or I can like see green trees, or just green grass. So to me, I'm just like, man, this state, Bucks County is like so, so beautiful to me. And I know you guys are probably like born and raised here, so you're like, oh, this is so boring, I see it every day. But I love it, I'm, I'm really enjoying our, our time here. I'm trying to get outdoors and really enjoy it, because uh, our, nearest, our nearest body of water where I grew up was uh, three hours away. So that's uh, a little bit of a scope for you. And uh, to get to the coast, to Houston, I guess it was like eight or nine. So it's cool you can go an hour here and basically get any body of water you want to be. Anyway, moving on. So celebrated one year in Pennsylvania here. My wife and I moved up uh, to help ministry here with Zane Dana and our dear friends. Um, so it's been an honor serving here, this church. Um, and also, I know we have some, some newcomers, some new people who have been coming the past couple weeks. Um, there's people online that might be new to Bristol Hope. Um, and so, after one year of being here, I just want to say it's it's uh, it's it's a powerful church. It's it's a it's a really welcoming church. Um, you instantly you feel welcomed. You feel like you're a part of a family and community. So, so for those of our newcomers, just feel at home, feel safe. It is a very safe place. Um, and since Pastor Dave is not here right now, I can I can kind of give him honor without like him saying anything. So I just wanted to say that he's probably going to watch the replay or whatever, but. Pastor Dave is, um, he's really, Pastor Dave and the Green Uncle family together, uh, but they've really been a challenge to my wife and I, um, even, even without words, just by watching their lifestyle. They've, they've really been uh, challenging us without actually verbally challenging our lifestyle, but just, just the way they live. Um, I, I look at um, 
just their family, the love that they have for each other. Um, I look at, as a man, I look at Pastor Dave, and he's like a full-time uh, full teacher, high school teacher, and then also pastoring a church, and then also training for like martial arts, and then also being like a husband and a dad. So I, I think to myself, like, I don't have any excuses. <laughs> so I, I'm like, I'm, I'm really, I'm really thankful that the Lord brought us to this church and plugged us into to the, to the Green Uncle family and the Ronaldo family. Just, uh, just I've been challenged with um, with what's being taught on the pulpit and also with the way I observe um, that the leaders live their life around here. It's, it's been a real, um, it's been a real treasure. Um, not everywhere do you find leaders who live what they say. So it's it's really 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 special place. So again, if you're a newcomer, um, feel welcome. Um, it's a very safe place to be. So turn, turn to Revelation chapter 1. I'll be teaching this morning on our priest and our shepherd. Um, essentially, we're going to take a little bit of time and just read through uh, chapter 1 and then chapters 2 and 3. Uh, looking at how Jesus is our high priest. I know Jose taught on this maybe two months ago, three months ago. I'm um, looking at how Jesus is our shepherd. Um, I... Because it's the book of Revelation, I feel like I have to give a bit of a preface, just to so we're all, like, all on the same page. There's a lot of different uh, outlooks and perspectives when it comes to this book, so I'm just going to take like, the first 10 minutes and just give you like a quick little synopsis in the book of Revelation. Um, I, lo I love this book. I've been teaching it for three or four years now at Harder Day School of Ministry. Um, I, I, re I really, really enjoy this book. I, I, uh, it's such a treasure. It really is. It really is a treasure, and I feel that it's uh, misunderstood a lot of times. Um, one of the things that I want to point out is just very basic, like 101. But the title of the book, the title of the book is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So I, I want to point that out because a lot of times when we come in to study the Book of Revelation, uh, we focus on everything else but Jesus Christ. We try. We usually focus on. Uh, the mark of the beast, you know, what is what is the 666? What does that mean? Where does that apply? What is it happening? Did it already happen? Like, what's... And then we focus on, like, uh, um, the beast or the Antichrist. Or we focus on uh, Babylon or, or just all these things. And, so, and sometimes when we turn to the book of Revelation, a lot of times we, we actually end up missing uh, the emphasis, the biblical emphasis that the book is, is given to us to understand. And I 100% believe that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. As it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it's the book's given to us to reveal Jesus to us in a specific way. Not to reveal um, dates, events, timelines, uh, you know, all this, all this stuff. And I will say, yes, that is in there, and that's part of the study. But the primary thing is to understand the man we worship. Um, something really powerful is... is you know, we just spent an hour declaring these songs, Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. And a lot of times, um, one of the places where we find the most detailed description of who Jesus is, is actually in the book of Revelation. So a lot of times when, when we make declarations and declarations in worship, um, sometimes we don't have a full picture of who Jesus is biblically in scripture. And, and, and a lot of times we actually have a smaller version, a smaller perspective of who Jesus is. And I like Revelation because it really expands how we view the Lord and, and, and how we view His glory. Um, we're going to focus on uh, chapter 1 in, in a minute, but 
But in, in, this, in this chapter, it's, it's magnificent. John is, has this encounter where Jesus comes to him and sees a vision. And then there's a, a detailed description of about uh, 10 descriptions of who Jesus is, these declarations. And we're going to take some time and go through them. But they, they really, they really kind of stretch and, and, and kind of like move the walls further away of how we see Jesus. A lot of times we have them in a, in a very small box or container. And I love the book because it really challenges us on how we view the man that we worship. You know, the man that we just sang for an hour, Jesus, we love you. So it's, it's I love this book. Uh, number two, just a quick um, preface to the book. Uh, a lot of times it's, uh, it's kind of relate, related to the apocalypse. It's the way people would normally relate the book, Apocalypse. Um, which is like end of the world. That's what we think, right? Like, I'm going to dig a bunker in the Poconos and buy canned goods and like move away for a year. That's kind of what we think when we think apocalypse. Um, so, in Greek, I hope you guys know that Jesus did not speak English. You know, John the Beloved did not speak English. You know, they wrote, so Hebrew, Aramaic, and, and Greek. So when this was written, it was actually written in, in Greek, you know, in a different language. And then later on, it was translated to, to Greek, and to Latin, and then to English. So we have... Uh, Generations of translations are removed from the original text. So the reason I bring this up is because um, uh, this one particular time I was teaching this book in Ecuador, and I was teaching it in Spanish. And in Spanish, the book title is El Apocalipsis. So it sounds just as scary in English as it does in Spanish. So when I when I go up there and I'm like, okay, you know, here's the missionary from the U.S. And it's like, let's turn to El Apocalipsis. <laughs> You know, so that's kind of the connotation that it has, like, wow, you know, this is scary. But what I found to be really special is the original definition of apocalypse actually just means to make it plain. It just means to expose. And over time, we've, we've given it a different connotation. It wasn't the, the original meaning. So the word apocalypse, it's in English, it's revelation, but in Greek, it's apocalypse. Uh, the word apocalypse, it means that, to unveil. And a scripture for you is uh, Romans 8.19. We know this one, Romans 8.19. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That scripture in, in Greek would read, for the creation waits with eager longing for the apocalypse of the sons of God. For the revealing. The exact same word, this revealing of the sons of God, is the exact same word in Revelation of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse. So the unveiling. Another one that's kind of comical, but I don't know if you guys know the story, when Noah is, uh, I guess he gets drunk and he's exposed to his sons in the tent, naked. But that word there in, in Hebrew is kalah, which is apocalypse, but it literally translates exposed. So Noah was apocalypsed to his sons. He was exposed, okay? So that's what, I don't know if you guys know that story, you're like, what's this guy talking about? But it's, it's in there, go be I promise. <laughs> it's in there. But anyway, what I'm saying is that uh, the, the term is more related to making something known than to hiding something. So a lot of times when we approach the book of Revelation, we usually come already thinking that it's very obscure, very hidden, there's symbols, there's secrets, there's all these things. And that's actually 180 degrees opposite of what the Father was intending as he was as they were putting this together. John the Beloved and, and Jesus, like when they write the revelation of Jesus, Christ, they're actually writing, here we are, trying to expose who Jesus is in the most clear way that we can. 
So I like to just give those two um, prerequisites to, to opening in the book. So we kind of have a level playing field. So we know that the book is not, it's, it's not like a random book that the father decided to throw in there like, okay, you guys like uh, scavenger hunt? Here you go. Have fun for the next thousand years figuring it out. That's not the case. Uh, the case is the father, scripture says that it's a gift given to us. So that kind of sets our mind in, in, in the right place to, to understand that this book is, is really given to us um, to make something plain, to make something that was hidden, but to make it exposed. So the, the imagery I like to think of is actually like a bride on her wedding day wears the veil over her face. You guys know what I'm talking, you're looking at me like you've never seen a bride with a veil over her face. Okay, so when that veil is removed, that's an apocalypse. That's an unveiling. That's essentially uh, the tone of the book. Okay, so the book is largely understood to be authored by John the Beloved. Um, as you know, it, it says in scripture, but John was exiled by the Roman government to the island of Patmos, which is east of Athens, Greece. Um, uh, the, the writing of the book, there's kind of two dates. Some people say during the time of Domitian, the reign of Domitian is a Roman emperor, but that was during 81 through 96 AD. Um, other people say during the reign of Nero, which is 54 to 68. Um, so if you're wondering when, you know, one of those two dates. So again, although the enemy surrounds the book with confusion, I really do believe the original intent is for it to be understood by everyone. You, know, you don't need like a PhD or a, a, to be a scholar or any kind, anything like that to understand the book. Uh, I really truly believe that the key to understanding it is just um, the Old Testament scriptures. Um, we'll get to this in a second, but actually 68% of all the verses in Revelation are a direct reference to the Old Testament. So if you understand the Old Testament, up to 68%, like you would understand the book of Revelation. Like oh, so many of uh, the verses, so many of the descriptions are actually tying back to the Old Testament. So a real key to understanding the book is, is just having a, a good, healthy um, understanding of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament a lot of times gets a bad rap in church, I'm not sure why, but uh, people see it as um, it's, it's the book that the Jewish people read, and we Gentiles, we read the New Testament which is incorrect, the whole Bible is, is edifying, the whole Bible is edifying for all of us, so it's good to read the, the Torah, the Old Testament, the, the books, because that's, that's where you find a lot of parallel, a lot of scripture, a lot of context, a lot of reference for the entirety of the New Testament, because all the New Testament writers, they didn't have the New Testament, they were writing the New Testament, but they're using the Old Testament as reference. Amen. Anyway, that's my two cents on that. So, uh, Personally, the way I like to approach the book is actually uh, beyond focusing on timelines and events and things like that. I like to examine uh, what's the heart of the message. Like, what? Why was this book given to us? Why is it still here? Um, what, why is it telling us? And then, two, two most important questions is: What does it reveal about Christ? And how does it encourage the church present today, right now? So, the two questions we're going to focus on this morning is. What does it reveal about Christ? And how are we encouraged with these chapters? Okay? Amen? On the same page? Amen. Cool. So I'll turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, and we'll start reading these descriptions. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. 
I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll go phrase by phrase. So, Revelation 1.9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in the book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and to Laodicea, or Laodicea. Uh, the next, next verse says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, or were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining its full strength. That's a lot, right? <laughs> so, the first thing is just think about what we just read. Like that is that is a lot to take in. So we're going to go phrase by phrase. Um, and again, I want to reiterate this. Uh, John, John the Beloved, as he's seen this vision, or this appearance of Jesus, um, when he's seeing these, these symbols, these images, they're not foreign symbols to him. He's actually very familiar with them. As a matter of fact, they, they, I, I believe without a doubt, as he's seeing these, these, these images, and seeing Jesus appear before him, all of these these things that he's seen on him are triggers to Old Testament scriptures and Old Testament stories um, and Old Testament truths. And one of those, when we get to it in a second, I'll talk about it. So we'll just keep going. So the first phrase we're going to look at is write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Okay, so this book, uh, the revelation is given to John the Beloved. John the Beloved writes this down and sends it to seven churches. These seven churches in what's present-day Turkey, and back then they called it Asia Minor. I'm not sure why they called it Asia Minor. I'm sure you could Google it. But it's, it's modern-day Turkey, so it's um, over there in the Middle East somewhere. <laughs> and uh, these, these churches, you wonder, like, why were they chosen? Something significant about them. These churches were uh, economic centers, much like you would think of, like, uh, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, D.C., like, just major centers of trade, of commerce, whatever like that. So it's the same equipment in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, in the ancient times, it was, they were basically like metroplexes of the day, you know, like Dallas, Fort Worth, or something like that. Um, so um, some people believe they were actually located along a trade route, so you had to basically stop at every single one of them to kind of get to where you were going. Um, I believe these, the message to these churches is, is not only applicable, but I believe it's essential. Uh, some believers, some people think that it's not applicable, uh, like meaning it doesn't apply to us, but I, I don't really believe that it applies to us directly. I believe it's essential to us. Um, and essentially, it's the case I'm going to make this morning. Um, the way I like to see these letters is kind of like a study guide before a test. Uh, the Father, in, in His generosity, in His kindness and compassion, gives us these Basically, the study guide to the text. Like, what is the standard? What is the plumb line? What is the measurement that is being used to measure the church? Like, is it numbers? Is it volume? Is it 
the sound system? Is it the, the carpet? You know, what, like what what does Jesus use to measure a healthy church? And what I love about Revelation two and three is that it kind of gives us the study guide before the text. It kind of gives us the answers before the actual questions uh, come, so we know how to respond and what to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, they they also come first. Revelation is twenty two chapters. Uh, the churches are in chapters two and three. So they're basically the first thing that John sees, aside from Jesus. The first thing he sees is these seven churches. So I believe they come first in in the, in the way in the layout of the book because of the priority. They're kind of the, kind of the first step, the ABCs, the one, two, three. Before you understand anything else in this book, before you move on to like Babylon, the beast, and all these things, first. Let's understand Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus is speaking to the church directly and giving us, um, giving us the, the layout of how to prepare our hearts, okay? So I, I believe the reason they come first is because they're foundational in their priority. Uh, number three, pick any number, whatever, four. So the seven, seven letters of seven churches are actually one complete message. Even though it's seven distinct churches, it's, it's part of one complete message. Um, I will say this here. Some people believe that Revelation 2 and 3, or the whole book, is strictly historical, meaning that Revelation 2 and 3, the seven seven letters, that there's no application to the modern believers. We're all historically fulfilled. Um, I take a little bit of issue with that, only because we we accept Ephesians, which is a letter written to Ephesus, and we accept Romans, written to Rome, or, you know, the Romans, Romans and Rome, written to... Hebrews, whatever, just pick any other epistle that Paul wrote. Um, we accept all of those letters. But when it comes to Revelation 2 and 3, all of a sudden, there seems to be a, a little bit of double standard. All of a sudden, they're historically fulfilled and they no longer apply, kind of thing. So I, I take a bit of an, an issue with that. I do believe they apply directly, historically. We know that they did. But I also believe that there's truth to them that you can apply today, as, as we'll see. Just like um, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, it was obviously applicable when they got the piece of paper and they read it, it was applying to them directly. But now, a thousand years later, we, we can read the same words and we're encouraged. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I believe it's, it's the same. You know, if you apply Ephesians, you can apply uh, Revelations chapter 2. Amen. So, um, there's a bit of a reference for that is 2 Timothy 3. It says, all scriptures breathe out by God, profitable for teaching. I won't read the rest you're familiar. Okay, the next phrase is the seven golden lampstands. So the seven golden lampstands. So when you're reading these, these, these images, you're reading this description of Jesus, and it says that he's in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. Um, to John, remember the context of John, a, a believer that was very familiar with the Jewish writing and the Old Testament. That's what he had to grow. Um, there's a good chance that he probably had the Torah memorized. There's a good chance he had you know, the, old, the Torah memorized. So when John sees seven lampstands, his immediate uh, point of reference is actually a, a menorah or a lamp in the temple. Like the description of Exodus, um, Tabernacle of Moses, if you guys are familiar with that, uh, there's like an outer court, there's a curtain, um, sanctuary, like in uh, Holy of Holies, and there's bread, and there's, uh, I think, wine, I'm not sure, and then there's uh, a lampstand that the priest would attend day and night. So, when John sees these lampstands, immediately, his, his context is 
this is the tabernacle of Moses, or this is a picture of a temple, or this is um, this is the dwelling place of God. Like I, I've seen this, I've seen this before through Scripture. This this menorah, this limestone. Does that make sense? So, um, and then also, if you have any doubts of what they are, Revelation one twenty, just a few verses down, it actually Scripture actually tells you. Jesus actually tells John what what it is. So I'll actually read it for you, so you don't think I'm lying to you. <laughs> so Revelation chapter one verse twenty. Uh, 120 says, The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the mystery of the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And here we go, it says, The seven lampstands, which you saw, they are the seven churches. So, a point of reference for that is going to be Matthew 5.14. Um, I'll just read it to you, it's not on the screen or anything. But Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. So, the, the biblical reference to understand what are the lampstands is Jesus directly tells us it's you know the seven churches. And then we have Matthew 14, where Jesus is teaching on what it is to be the light of the world. Okay? So lampstands represent Kind of like the testimony of the church or the light of influence. I'm so explanatory. So, anyway, uh, Leviticus 6.13 talks about uh, a fire on the altar that should be kept burning continually and not go out. And I, I, see, I see a picture of Jesus here as high priest, and he's actually given himself to tend that flame, which is this, you know, the seven churches, to tend that lampstand. To make sure that the light of influence doesn't go out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the next phrase here is midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So the word midst there or among. What I love about this, if you just take a second and think about this picture, you have Jesus dressed as high priest, and he's in the middle of the seven lampstands, which we now know are the churches. So it's this picture of Jesus being near to the church. Um, and, and I think it's a very, very powerful image because it's saying that Jesus is dedicated to ministering to the church. He's dedicated to tending the flame of the church uh, and of the individual believer because we make up that church. So I love this on, on, on two levels. On one, the personal level, because when I feel anxiety, stress, or whatever, you know, weights on my shoulders, anything like, like it's anything in the mind, whatever, anything like that, it gives me hope that Jesus has given himself to the place of intercession for my life, to intercede for me. That is currently what he is doing. He's a high priest making intercession. He's praying for us. This is what this image is. It's Jesus tending those, that flame. So in, in your heart, when you start to feel, whether it is cold towards the Lord or, or, or that flame is, is, is waxing over, whatever you, whatever, you're, you know, whatever you start to feel just a bit distant or estranged from the Lord, be reminded that he's actually dedicated, given himself to tend that fire in your heart, not to go out. He's given himself to intercede for you. Um, and, and I love this image because he's not far away from the church. He's given himself to be in right in the middle of the lampstands. Like right, like that's his, one of his jobs. The first job is to minister to the Father, but secondly, to minister to the church. You know, as a high priest and as a shepherd. So.
Um, on this, the second level that I love this is a lot of times believers and you know ministers they can become uh, cynical they can become hurt by the church and people will often leave the church or, or I'm just I'm just done with you know the, the program of the church the program of what it is and what I love about this image is that Jesus is not giving up on the church you know he's not he's not going to tear down the institution of the church and, and do something else you know like no he's committed to see his bride like mature to see his bride dressed in righteousness he's given himself committed to the church and what I love about that is and I know that uh, hurtful situations can come in the church and um, you know a lot of times people take a, take a break from church for a while or something like that but in a way Jesus doesn't give us an excuse to to run away and never come back kind of thing because he's like he's given himself to tend the church no matter what and, and I love that because it, it offers so much hope that the man who is in charge of the the church is Jesus. He's the head, and he's the one who's tending the church. He's given himself compassionate to care for her, um, and I love that because no matter what, you know, how jaded or how burnt you can be by people in the church or hurt, whatever things like that, um, it's it doesn't give us room to then speak about the church or turn our back against the church or anything like that. Because the church is is it's really the bride of Christ. It's really the bride. Like it's really Brightness preparing. So, um, there's that. <laughs> so, the next one is um, in the midst of the, the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So, that phrase, Son of Man, again, to John the Beloved, as he's witnessing this, when he sees that, that phrase, the Son of Man, he thinks of Daniel in Daniel 7 13. I'll read this to you. Daniel 7 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom to all peoples and nations. I'll just pause there for the sake of time. But uh, John the Beloved, as, as he's witnessing this appearance of Jesus, and, and he sees one like the son of man, that phrase, son of man, is a direct reference to Daniel. And this phrase is actually very, very interesting. Um, if you do a word study, Jesus preferred this title, Son of Man. When Jesus referred to himself, he referred to himself as Son of Man. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, if you guys have uh, like your apps or phones or laptop, whatever, if you get the app Blue Letter Bible, it's a great, great uh, st like study Bible program, Blue Letter Bible. Letter Bible, I think it's .org, I'm not sure, but they have an app. Anyway, you get the app. You just you do a search of any phrase in Scripture. So I did a search for Son of Man. It actually occurs 80 times in the Gospels. So 80 times it's Jesus referring to himself as Son of Man. And this is, I wouldn't necessarily have time to cover this, but this is such a powerful declaration that Jesus is saying. Because there's only one place in the Old Testament uh, where where it's tied into Son of Man, it's talking about the Messiah. There's other places where it says Son of Man, speaking of like a regular person. But specifically talking about the Messiah, that's in Daniel 7. And so when Jesus is on earth and calling himself the Son of Man, everyone around him, they were Torah scholars. They knew exactly, they knew, they knew what he was talking about. So when Jesus said, you know, so will be like, so will be the, the coming of the days of the Son of Man, or something like that. 
he makes these phrases, the people around him were saying, are you, are you telling us that you're the son of man, the one that Daniel was talking about, that vision? And, and 80 times, Jesus used this title over and over, son of man, son of man. So it's, in a way, without coming right out and saying it, he was basically saying, yes, I am that one from Daniel 7. Like, I am the son of man. I am the one that approached the ancient of days. Like, I am the one that's been given dominion, glory, kingdom, people, as it says in Daniel 7. So, in a way, 80 times, Jesus was saying, I secretly am the Messiah. You know your Bible, so technically it's not a secret. Here I am. But it, it's kind of like he was, I don't know. Anyway, moving on. So, next phrase is, clothe the long robe, uh, clothe the long robe with a golden sash around his chest. So, again, the context for this would have been high priest. So, John sees this image, um, he would have immediately thought of a high priest. Exodus 27, 20, I won't read it for the sake of time, but it says that Aaron and his sons were given to the place, uh, the tent, I guess I just read it, because I'm good at paraphrasing. You shall command the people of Israel and bring to you pure bean olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, it is before the testimony for the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord, and it shall be a statue forever to be observed throughout the generations by the people of Israel. So the imagery is one of Jesus robed as our high priest, again, tending the lamp before the Father. Okay, these, are the, these are the things that John would have thought, and these are the things that us as readers um, would have thought if, if we have a uh, familiar understanding of the Old Testament. Okay, cool, make sense? Yeah. All right, the next one is, uh, again, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. Again, that is another reference to the vision in Daniel 7. It says, in the ancient of days, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Uh, Proverbs sixteen thirty one says, "Gray hair is a crown of glory, and it is gained in the righteous life." So when John sees these these images, it's it's making this declaration of Jesus that because it says his hair was white like snow, white like snow. So it's saying that he's been crowned with glory through a righteous life. Is is the imagery that's being given here. Uh, the next one is, his eyes were a flame of fire. Um, scripture for that that I have is 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Um, and that's what I think of when I see uh, his eyes like a flame of fire. And I, I know that this can be intense if, if you think about it. You, you see Jesus and his eyes are burning fire. This isn't the appropriate um, metaphor, but I think of Lord of the Rings, the like all-seeing eyes, whatever. It's not the appropriate because he's evil. Absolutely. But anyway, I kind of, I kind of think if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, yes, I don't know. But anyway, there's this eye that's like burning and like all-consuming. So it is kind of frightful to think that Jesus has these burning eyes, and it's it's true that it is intense. But I believe it's it's intense both ways. Like, yes, it is. Fierce, you could say. It is fierce, the eyes of the fire. But also, I see it as a bridegroom when he has his eyes locked on his bride as she's coming down the aisle on a wedding day. The eyes are set, you know, the gaze is set, the eyes are locked. Um, like we were seeing earlier, like all eyes are on him. I see that the fire is, is all-consuming, so it means it can't get enough. So uh, a way I like to look at it is like his eyes 
can't get enough. Like they're looking unto us, looking for us. It's really this this urgency of fellowship. These eyes are beckoning fellowship with us. That's one way to look at it. However, because I'm responsible for what I teach, they also are fierce eyes that do expose what's in the heart. Like they do examine. They are purifying eyes. So not only is it um, a beautiful picture of you know bridegroom focused on his bride, it's also a picture of I would say like a, like a surgeon, like someone who's who who ex exposes it and the th inner, works, inner workings of the heart. I mean, like I could do a triple bypass or something. <laughs> but I see it like that. Like he looks at our character. He looks at little things in our heart and exposes them. He says, like, hey, you know, check your attitude with your coworkers. Hey, do this, do that. Those to me are the eyes of fire as well. So it's both the power of that loving gaze, the, the eyes, and also the power of like a, a surgeon, like someone who's you know cares for us, right? Hope that makes sense. All right, the next one I think is one of my favorite. It's a little strange, but his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And I love this burnished bronze. It, it means like a, like white hot metal. If you've ever seen like a blacksmith work, uh, my dad is a welder, so he works with <clears throat> metal. So I don't advise this, but if if you were to watch my dad welding, sunglasses on, it would when you, when he's melting the, the metal together, it turns white white hot, like right where the flame is, like right where it's happening. It's, it's just like a blinding white light. So when you heat metal to that um, degree, that temperature, I guess, uh, it turns white, white hot. Maybe you've seen it in movies or something like that. But what I like about this picture is when John's seeing Jesus, his feet are like glowing white hot metal. And what I love about this is it represents a purity of walk because his feet, his walk, is refined, it's purified. That's how you purify gold or silver at high temperatures. You remove the, the dross, you remove the elements that aren't supposed to be there. You make it 100% pure. When something's pure, it just means 100% of something. So it's, Jesus is pure, so it's 100% of something. Does that make sense? So his walk is pure. So what I love about this is Jesus is not uneasy about his steps. Every step he takes is refined. Every step he takes is 100% purified. And I love uh, this, this picture from the prodigal son. If you guys know the story of the prodigal son, the father is, is waiting for his son to return. And when he sees his son from a far off distance, the scripture says that the father stands to his feet and starts to run towards the prodigal son. And I love this, this imagery because in a way I, I see Jesus like as, as the father of the prodigal son, and when he's running towards the prodigal son who's returning, his, his feet, his, his, his walk, his run is so sure. He's so sure of himself. He's 100% dedicated. There's not 99% there's not dedication and 1% doubt. It's, it's full. There's no room for anything else but commitment when he walks. Does that make sense? So I, I love that, that purity of walk. Uh, that Jesus has. There's a couple of scriptures for that. It's Psalm 119. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 6.23 says, uh, For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. It reproves discipline um, for the way of life. So the next phrase I have for you is, uh, And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Whoa, it's 11.50? Man. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to take a break and come back. I'm just kidding. So his voice was like the roar of many waters. Just so you know, I have 13 pages. I'm on page five. But it's, it's cool. I'll skip a lot of stuff. So his voice. So good. 
His voice was like the roar of many waters. The scripture reference for this is uh, the Hebrews 1 and 2 passage that says, uh, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Amen. So, so this is, this particular portion is my opinion. Uh, his voice was like the roar of many waters. So I, I see that through the Old Testament, through all the scripture, there's these different declarations that the prophets are making. They're pointing to the Messiah, like Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, um, Moses, Abraham. They're making all these declarations pointing forward towards the Messiah, right? And when Jesus comes, Hebrews 1-2, it says that God spoke to, to us through the prophets, but now he's speaking to us through his son. So the way I picture it is, it's kind of like a funnel. Like all these prophetic words, all these prophetic promises are crashing at, at the culmination of Jesus. Like who, who these promises are about is the Messiah, it's Jesus. So when Jesus speaks, he's basically a walking fulfillment of thousands of years of prophetic words. So when, it, when he's, his voice is like many waters, because it's all these rivers, or all these prophecies that have been given in Scripture, and they're crashing at his, at his lips when he speaks. So when he speaks, he has the authority of, think of like the, the just the book of Isaiah, you know, the chapters, the declarations of Isaiah, you know, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, you know, all these different things. And when Jesus is speaking, this is the full authority, the full weight of all those declarations being made. When he, when he speaks, just that authority of, of history. Does that make sense? So that's kind of, that, that particular one, that one's my opinion. It's not necessarily, it's a biblically informed one, but it's not like, uh, it's cool. It's not like, you know, whatever, I don't know. Like? <laughs> uh, one of the things, when, when I think about his voice is like, like water, his voice is like many waters, is I think the history, the stories of his voice. So you start off with his voice saying, light to be, you know, the same voice that's spoken to the universe, is a light be. Uh, it's also the same voice that questioned Sarah when she laughed, you know, like, Sarah, why did you laugh? You know, when the prophetic word was given that she was going to bear a son named Isaac, she was buried at the time. So she laughs, and so he says, Sarah, why did you laugh? So, uh, and the next one I have is like, the same voice that whispers to Samuel in the night, like Samuel, Samuel, prophet Samuel. It's the same voice that uh, says to Peter, you know, feed my sheep. Uh, and again, the same voice that on the cross says, it is finished. So you have this, this voice that's kind of been gaining momentum throughout Scripture. It's kind of like an, like an avalanche. It started off as, I would never equate the Lord's voice as a small snowball, but here we go. It started off as a, a small snowball in Genesis 1, and it's been, you know, rolling and rolling down this mountain, avalanching, you know, now it's like a massive avalanche. So when he speaks here to John in Revelation at the end of the storyline, it's just this, this crash, you know, this, this many waters. That's kind of the way that I see it. Again, that's just, um, that's just my opinion. So, in, in his right hand, he held seven stars. This one is confirmed through the Bible. His right hand, he held seven stars. Uh, Revelation 1.20 says, The mystery of the seven stars, you saw in my right hand, these are the seven angels to the seven churches. So, if you're wondering what the seven stars are, they are the angels to the churches. I want to point out something right here and move on. In Greek, the word angel is actually messenger. So I personally believe that when these letters are being written and given to the angels of the churches, they're not given to literal angels with wings, but given to the leadership of the churches. Only because in Greek, 
um, the word angel there is, is messenger. So they're given to the messengers of the churches. And as it was custom, when you received a letter to a church, you would, um, the messenger, the reader, would stand up and read it to the congregation, and they would all take it in at the same time. So these, these, um, this letter, Revelation, was, was read aloud in these seven churches, okay? So I believe, I don't believe there's, they were written to specific angels with wings, but to messengers. Uh, the secondary, um, I don't want to say proof, but like, uh, I guess, evidence, is that they're instructed to repent. Um, and so to my knowledge, I don't know if angels can repent. So a lot of times in the letters, they're instructed to repent, return to your first works, these kinds of messages. So I believe it's uh, leadership of the churches that the letters are written to. Okay? So we're basically, it's time to wrap up. So let's keep moving forward. Let's turn to Revelation 2, and I'll just cover one one or two churches, and I, I, I told myself I wasn't going to be the guy who said, like, okay, I'm wrapping up, and then like another 20 minutes goes by. So I'll just do this one. This this is good. I'll, I'll give you guys the layout of the template, and if you guys want to go study it out, you're welcome to. So Ephesians, sorry, Ephesians, Revelation 2, 2 Ephesus, that's why I said Ephesians. I read it to you. It says that Revelation chapter two says. Oh, actually, I'll read a different version because that is King James. Okay, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and not, and have found them to be false. That's the crazy sentence we just read. Anyway, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or you've fallen from your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works you did at first. Uh, if, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. Okay, so that's a lot to take in. So the first thing I want to point out, and I'll kind of leave you guys with this template, but when Jesus is, is writing these letters to all seven churches, he, he follows a format. So when he opens up to the angel of the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, whatever. Um, he always gives, he always pulls from one of those descriptions that we talked about. Um, and essentially, he's the high priest. He's about to point out a place of correction or a place of weakness in the, in the church. So, but what he does first is he provides his strength. First, he, he provides one of the descriptions where he, where he has strength for, for that area of weakness in the church. And we'll read it here. It says, um, the template goes like this, the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So what is Jesus trying to tell Ephesus by saying the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand? He's saying, remember the seven stars are the messengers of the churches. So he's, he's starting out by saying, Ephesus, I'm holding you in my hands. That's what he's saying. The seven stars in the right hand, that we, like that's what it just said. So he's starting out by saying, Ephesus, I'm holding you in my right hand. 
And it's interesting because he says, remember from where you have fallen. But he's reminding him, I'm holding you in my right hand. But it's interesting because he says, like, remember from where you have fallen, from your first love. And the next thing he says is, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We know that seven lampstands are the church. So again, he's, he's twice telling Ephesus to the, to the messengers, to the leaders, I'm holding my right hand. And then to the church, he said, saying, I'm walking among the church. I'm very, very near to you. I am not far away from you, Ephesus. So it's this powerful image of Jesus saying, I'm near the lampstand, meaning I'm near, I'm near you, Ephesus. I'm near you. Even though you've, you know, you've fallen from your first love, like it, it's okay, repent, come back. Like I'm holding you in my right hand. I'm giving myself as high priest to tend that flame. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. So we don't have time to go through the other ones. Um, so if the worship team wants to come up, we'll start wrapping up. Um, but if you follow this template, you can actually go through them. Um, you go through Smyrna and it says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So to this church, he's, he's about to give them an encouragement to endure through something. Because he, he says the first and the last, you know, the A and the Z, the Alpha and the Omega. He's saying, I've, I'm in the beginning, I'm in the end, I'm in the middle. And so, to, for example, to the church of Smyrna, they're about to go through a time of persecution. And so he's encouraging them, saying, I'm the one who died and came to life, saying, I've endured even to the point of death. So this is kind of the encouragement that he's given. So if, if you guys want to go through the seven letters, follow this template. Jesus opens up and he gives a description of one of his strengths for an area of weakness in the church that needs correction. Okay, so I mean, we're, this is it. We're out of time. So we're going we're gonna to spend some time, just a few moments in prayer. And I'm grateful that we got through the first one, um, following from our first love, because this is the one I wanted to emphasize. Uh, I'll say a few, a few comments. In. I know that the last six months have brought the subject of the end times to the forefront of the church. Um, they've brought the subject of the end times to believers and non-believers. I work at a warehouse, and I remember the first after the first month of like quarantine, one of my coworkers, who was a believer, he came up to me, and he's like, basically asked me like. What's the whole book of Revelation about? Like, is this in there? Like, what's going on? So I got to, like, in the middle of the aisles in the warehouse, basically teach the whole book of Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. It was awesome. But what, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is uh, the last six months have really brought this topic to the forefront of the church. So there's a lot of discussion right now about this topic, you know, end times, Revelation, things like that. And I feel charged, I feel compelled to emphasize the seven letters to the seven churches. Because there's a lot of articles, there's a lot of, um, you know, things on YouTube, things you can find other teachers, things like that. And they're emphasizing, you know, Mark of the Beast, emphasizing Antichrist, emphasizing all these other things. But I would challenge that the number one most important thing is to remain in the first love. And I believe this is why it's the first letter given to the church. And it's also the first step in essentially understanding the end times. Like, what's this all about? All this stuff. Just don't lose your first love. You're going to be okay. Because you're going to be right there with the Lord. He's going to be right there tending the flame.
plane, tend the land. If you keep your first love, you will be okay. You'll be, you'll be tuned into his voice. You'll be tuned in. Um, and then obviously, from there you move on and you study out the rest of the book. But the first most of the priority is not to lose your first love. Um, so just as we wrap up, the last, last uh, phrase I want to focus on, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, which all of us have ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know if you, you know this, but this is actually the one phrase that Jesus emphasized the most in Scripture. This is the, the one phrase that he emphasized the most. So he's saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And just, this is just my, my personal opinion here, but the book of Revelation, we know, is already an overlooked book. It's not very popular, and a lot of people study it. But I would say, chapters 2 and 3, the letters, are even less studied in the book. Because most people want to turn to chapter 6 and read the signs and, and, and all the dragon and all the stuff, and they skip 2 and 3. They skip the part where Jesus is directly talking to us. What I would argue is probably the most important part. Um, so that's that's what I feel to emphasize about the Holy Spirit. And I also believe that biblically, Jesus emphasizes this. To him who has ears, let him hear. Let him research and study what Jesus said to the church, the, the, the seven churches, what, what things is Jesus highlighting for us to take care of, to steward? What things, like I said, his eyes are fire out of love, but also eyes like a surgeon. What things is, is he examining in the heart of the church saying, return to your first love? You know, do the first works, these kinds of things. So, why don't we stand to our feet? We're just going to do maybe one song, and we'll dismiss after, but I want to give just a few moments just to have a little time to reflect and, and, uh, and really challenge us. So I'll just say the, the altar is open if you want to come up, um, and we'll pray out, and then if you guys feel compelled to stay, you're more than welcome to stay. Those online, you can take some time to reflect online, uh, and then you're, you're, you're free to go have a great week, but I'll just close this out in prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you that, we thank you that you are the high priest, meaning that you dedicated yourself to the place of intercession, that you're you're actually praying nonstop, no matter what's happening. You're praying for us in the church. We thank you, God, that, that the circumstances in the midst of anything that comes your way, you're praying for us. You're strengthening us. You're encouraging us. You're tending that flame. And Lord, this morning, I'm just compelled by the scripture, Lord. I, I, I declare this challenge to us. To him who has ears, let him hear what Jesus is saying to the churches. And what is he saying to us, Lord? I, I just make this, this declaration. Return to your first love. Not to get so caught up in, 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 in all this stuff, but in the simplicity of love, to return to that first love 
So Father, right now, we just take a few moments as we close the service. We take a few moments and we're just going to contend, Lord. We contend, Father, that you would, you would increase that fire in our hearts for the first love. Bring us back to that simplicity of loving you. Bring us back to that simplicity. I just encourage you, if you're welcome to, if you want to, just take a few moments to meditate on this. Just in your own words, you don't have to shout or, or raise your voice or anything like that, but just in your own words to say, Lord, reignite that first love. Reignite that first love. Where we've let uh, either ministry get in the way or our job or our family or whatever it is that's going in the way. We say, ignite that first love flame, God. That flame that will sustain us through the end times, that flame that will sustain us through the present day, right now, whatever happens today, Lord, that first love flame sustains us. We make room for you. Holy Spirit, right now, increase your presence. We make room for you. Confirm your word. You emphasize these, these, these two chapters in Revelation. Come, confirm your word. I ask that right now. We begin to feel a burning in our hearts. A genuine, authentic repentance. Not out of fear, not because out of persuasion. Just an authentic repentance saying, God, I'm sorry. I want to return to my first love. I want to set you first again, Lord. I want to set you first again, Lord. We apologize, so we repent, God. We come back to you saying, restore you as a center of our heart. Restore you as king over our affection. As Lord over our heart. As Lord over our decisions. Our decision-making process. When you are Lord, your master over our hearts. Come take your rightful place again as king. Come take your rightful place. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Again, the altar's open. Take some time. We're going to be in worship. And if, you, if you need to go, it's okay. We're dismissed.